Thanks, worship team. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Kind of coming to the end of it here. I've got one more Sunday of, to finish up, but um, been a challenging sermon for me. Uh, lots of challenges and just such the depth of the sermon, just it, it kind of stuns me every time I have to dig into it. And, but let's read here this morning, Matthew chapter 7, beginning with verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. My, my son uh, played basketball at Multnomah Bible College. It's a small Christian school in, in Portland, Oregon. And there's a bit of a legend surrounding that uh, basketball program. A number of years before he was there, um, the college, Multnomah Bible, was playing against a college by the name of Reed College. They're also in Portland. But Reed is known for its liberal environment. And on this one occasion, they were down at Reed College, and as you know, when they come out onto the court, music starts kind of cranking up. And on that particular occasion, the Reed College started by playing ACDC's infamous songs, Highway to Hell and Hell's Bells, over and over again. And I think the Reed's players and the fans, I guess, were laughing and kind of mocking the, the players from the Bible College and trying to psych them out. From what I understand, that Multnomah won by about 50 points that night, so kind of got the last laugh. But when one pauses, and when you think of the journeys of those two teams, here's a Bible college where you have to give a testimony to give into the, co into the college, and one path where they're going and where Reed College is going, there's really two different destinies. There's really two different gates. There's, there's two different paths that ultimately lead to two different destinations. So today, we've we got to dig into a, a text that's it's hard. I have to say this. It's, it, it's pointed. It has a number of warnings to it. And, and let me just look, put up again verses 13 and 14 on the screen, just because it's so pointed. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. There's, you understand the, the, the pointedness of that statement. 
Now, when we pause and go, okay, who's the audience again? He, you know, he's sitting on that mountain. There's a big crowd in front of him. And, but the reminder that this was a Jewish audience. These were, it was filled with people who were deeply religious. They respected God, and they were actually working hard to keep his commandments. In many ways, they were nothing like that basketball team at Reed College. But the pointed reality of this text, that it, it speaks predominantly toward the religious world, the Christian world that we would call it even today. It's pointed at those people, you know, when you go into some um, hospital or whatever and you got to check what kind of faith you are, it's for those who check Christian as it's applied to us today. See, I, I think it's easy to kind of skew and look at this passage and say, well, this is for the people, warning the people that are singing the song Highway to Hell with gusto. And you go, no. It's not for those, this isn't really even for the atheist. This is really for men and women and children who are in churches who claim to be followers of God. Uh, so the, the first point there, if you're taking notes in the sermon outline, I said it this way. People can be deceived and believe that they've chosen the right path toward eternity, that they're wrong. And they don't realize it, they won't realize it until eternity begins. And you go, how sad. See, people can assume that they're saved by God, but they're going to discover that in one sense they chose the wrong door. Uh, you know, what came to my mind as I was studying and, and thinking of the door, I, I go back to um, Let's Make a Deal. Remember that show? I think it's still on in some places. It, behind door number one, door number two. And, and they choose the one with all of the stuff and the money signs on it. Do you choose that one or do you choose the small one? I was listening to a radio program driving up on Tuesday. And uh, it wasn't a Christian station. And the radio host was using a lot of Christian lingo. And a man called in. And it was really interesting because the man was really, I think, searching for faith is what he was doing. And out of the blue, the radio host asked the guy if he knew for certain that he was worthy to get into heaven. And the caller replied, no, I'm not sure. It's kind of, it was really interesting. I was just kind of glued to the radio. And all of a sudden, so the radio announcer, he responds like this. You can be certain if you just know that you're trying harder to be good and right. See, his certainty was based on an effort of doing good moral deeds. But I go, isn't that potentially what people can believe of people who attend church? As long as I'm trying harder to be religious, if I'm going to church, jumping through the hoops, I can even carry my Bible to church. And we can assume that we're good to go, but, you go, but Jesus is going, hmm, maybe or maybe not. But you also notice the contrast as well here. Wide gate, easy path, narrow gate, a hard path. See, one door is wide open and inclusive, and the other one, frankly, you have to do the opposite, is exclusive. Few will enter it. 
And it's hard. Now, I, I think right away, as, we, as I look at that word hard, and we kind of wrestle with it and go, but Jesus, is the way to you hard? Isn't salvation simple? Well, let me take you back a couple chapters to Matthew 5, verse 20. He actually had pointed this out earlier. Look at what he writes here. For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I think Jesus has kind of set up the crowd here. He's already pointed out here in 520, it's not simple, it's not easy, but you go, why is it difficult? Why does he say it's hard? Well, I think this is one of the reasons, that the door is not built on a method of stooping a certain way or knocking the right way. See, the path is not a set of rules that one lives by, or it's, and it's not some kind of formula. And it's... The other one, the narrow, is hard. And our righteousness has to exceed beyond the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious people of the day to get to that right path. Well, how does then one obtain the righteousness to enter the kingdom of heaven? How does one then enter through that tiny gate and a narrow path? And frankly, here's the answer. It's a person. It's not a method. It's Jesus. And as I was pondering this, my mind went right away to the rich young ruler in Mark 10, a man approaches Jesus, and remember the story, he, he asked Jesus, what must I do to have eternal life? And you know the story, he actually dropped to his knees, and, and Jesus tells him, keep all the commandments. And he replies, tells Jesus, I've done that. Is there anything else? And then Jesus responds and says this, take all of your wealth, all of your stuff, sell it and give it away to the poor. And you, you know the story. At that point, the man went away sad. But I think we can miss the point as well in that story. It's not about selling the riches. It's not about giving up the stuff. If that were true, that would be a formula. But look, look at Mark 10. I want to put that on the screen. The rest of the story. Jesus looked around and says to his disciples here, this is after the rich man had left, how hard it is, there, there we come back to that, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed. And look at the question they said to each other, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them. Just think of him gazing in his eyes. And he says this, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible with God. Then Peter, the brash one, he, he speaks up. But look at what he states. We have left everything. But look at what I underline. To follow you. To follow you. 
See, that phrase is so critical for us because it's following the person of Jesus. And I think we want easy one, two, three steps. And, and sometimes I think we teach our children that salvation here is just about some nice little prayer. And you've got to really be careful as parents that you're not teaching your kids that it's a formula. It's Jesus. It's following him. It's putting our faith in the person of Jesus, not in a prayer, not in a system. A prayer might be the point of verbal expression of faith, but it doesn't guarantee it if the rest of the heart is going, I don't want to follow Jesus. See, that phrase, to follow you, is about him. See, the gate isn't prayer. The gate is Jesus. And once we enter the gate of Jesus, the journey then begins with Jesus on that journey as well, on that path. Now, interesting, as I was pondering this, I, I almost, I just, my gut kind of tells me that, that when it says it's hard, that Jesus is preparing his disciples for something even more. Because I know that Jesus already knows at this point, you know what, i got to go to the cross. And this is early on in his ministry, but there's a point where he begins to reveal, guys, guess what, I'm going to the cross, you're going to have to follow me and do the same. See, he's, he's pushing them out. But it's about him. Look at a couple of verses here in Scripture that really point this out. John 10, 9. Very pointedly, I, who's that? I, Jesus, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. And you know this one, John 14, 6. Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, in light of that reality, number two for your notes to fill that in there, the door and the path is not a method. The door and the path is a person named Jesus. The big door, the wide path, it doesn't include Christ. But here's, I think, a little bit our predicament. When we share the gospel with people, all of a sudden what we're going to be accused of, you're narrow-minded, you're bigoted, you're intolerant, and God is supposed to have a wide path where everybody can have salvation. And you go, what do we do with that? I, I, I think the challenge for us is, in, in one sense, their beef isn't with us. And we need to just ask them, tell it to Jesus. Struggle with him. Just give them the scriptures and go, your, your beef isn't with me. It's what, what he is claiming. You know, do we realize that if they don't accept that, what they're doing is they're calling Christ Jesus a liar. It's not true. See, the Son of God claims an exclusive path, and it's him, and it's him. But look at verse 15 to continue on. It says, Beware of the prophets 
who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Here he throws another warning at them. And now when we pause and we go, who is he talking about here? I think it's pretty evident from the context, from the whole sermon, that he's talking about the Pharisees and the religious people of that day who claim to speak for God. It's the religious leaders who know the Scriptures. They, they're, they're putting the burden on people, but they're claiming that they are the ones that hear from God. Now, in a reverse way, I, I don't know if you caught, that, caught this, but by him saying false prophets, in a reverse way, he's going, I'm right. You catch that? You're false. I'm assuming he's assuming that he is true and right. Do you see, he's challenging them, and it's becoming even a little more stronger here. And eventually, you know what, they're going to get angry at him down the, a few years down the road. But as he's challenging them, and he, matter of fact, he, didn't, he already has challenged them before this as well. Remember in the sermon, you have heard that it was said, you have heard that it was said. I covered that a number of weeks ago. He was kind of very subtly going, your teaching's off, guys. Now, there's a verse here. I'm not going to look it up. A passage, Ezekiel 34. If you want to just write that down, look at it sometime. Because it gives a picture of the Old Testament where God speaks against the shepherds and the leaders of Israel. And I'll just quote it. He, you eat the curds, clothe yourselves with wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. And then he goes on in the end of the chapter and he talks about he's going to replace the false shepherds and the leaders with himself. And he will be the true shepherd of the sheep. But do we catch something else here in the text? Because he gives us a manner in which to evaluate whether there's these people are speaking from God or they're wolves in sheep's clothing. Because he tells them you will know them by their fruit. And the reality is, we, we, as we think of trees, and you know what? You have an apple tree, it produces apples. You have a pear tree, it produces pears. You have a pizza tree, it produces pizza. So just checking to see if you're listening. Um, but we need to be discerning in that. Okay, there's a discernment that he's calling us to. But what do we do? need to know? We need to know the scriptures where we understand the truth that gives the ability to spot which is false and even uh, poor and inadequate teaching. But what is the bad fruit that he's talking about here, especially in the context of this sermon, as he's going after these religious leaders? Well, one, of, one piece, I think, is this. He's, he continually goes after them that you can't earn righteousness. You can't gain access to heaven by trying harder. And it's got to be exceed the Pharisees. It's got to be beyond that. Uh, that radio announcer, that talk show host, that was the essence of his fruit. You can try harder to be certain that you're good enough to enter heaven. But think some of the other fruit that was revealed even in this chapter, in the couple, last couple of chapters. One of them, chapter 6, men standing in the corner wanting the praise of men, wanting to convince others how righteous they were. See, that's false fruit. That's bad fruit. 
Another one, even earlier in this chapter, in verse 1, that first, do not judge. In the context of poor fruit, understand these leaders were judging people and saying, you're righteous, you're not. You've given enough, now you're righteous. You haven't given enough, you're not. See, there's a, they're claiming that they can pass judgment on people, and Jesus is going, no. See, bad fruit really is about passing condemnation on people. Now, how does this apply to us? You know, and when you think of even earning righteousness, and wouldn't it be nice if we could just tally up and actually do something to earn something? We kind of work that way. Our economy exists that way. Put in an effort and you get a reward. And Jesus goes, no, my economy is going to be very different than that. But isn't that true of a lot of us still that we still can default? Man, I, what jumped in my mind is Mary and Martha. Martha, remember the story that Jesus comes to their house and Martha is busy working for Jesus and Mary just falls at his feet and wants to be with him. And, and she's upset because she's not working. Mary's not working. See, that's part of our challenge as well. We think that somehow that God is going to be impressed with what we do. And no, where does righteousness really, where does it come from? It's submitting to Him. It's opening up our hands to Him and trusting Him. Recognizing His grace and His kindness. And He's offering a relationship with Himself and His Father. See, He's warning against the teaching without relationship. But there's one more warning here. And it's even a bit more pointed. Look at in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many works, mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Uh, for your notes, I said it this way. Religious activity is not an assurance of a saving faith relationship with Christ. Here's an alley I think we need to ponder. See, Jesus is training his disciples. And what does he want them, in this context, what does he want them to understand? And I think maybe it's this. A religious resume does little within the kingdom of heaven. Um, we've begun a call committee. We've been meeting for a little over a month here, and we've been interviewing or just looking at resumes, and we've had over 50 resumes already. But when you think maybe some of you have had to hire people, I know many of you have, and you get this great resume, and it can fool you. Uh, Deanna does interviewing and she has to hire nurses. And um, hiring nurses, the resume can look really great. And all of a sudden you get into it, they can't care for people. See, it, it can fool people into believing that somehow there's they're, they're something that they're not. 
So a spiritual resume, there can be things that are missing beyond what's written. Now, now for your notes, I, I, I said, what are the things that they're claiming they're putting on the resume here in this text? And the first one is this. They have great respect for the Lordship of Christ. See, the fact that they go, Lord, Lord, when he, two times in a row, there's an emphasis thing there. And it's saying this, I really respect Jesus. I'm submitting to even his authority. Does it count? There, but there's a second one on this resume as well. They're committed to claim and speak the truth from God. God, we prophesied in your name. See, people can pull out a prophetic trump card and, and the sense that, you know what, God said this to me. And this passage implies this. It's very pointed that that may have nothing to do with God. Thus saith the Lord may be actually from the evil one. A third piece to the resume. External evidence of spiritual power. I think this is a hard one, even more hard. See, the outward evidence and people are affirming that the power of God is working. There's evidence of signs and wonders almost. And even there we stop and go, actually it's not the definitive answer that proves one is from God. Casting out demons. They must be working for God. And Jesus goes, no. See, there's an appearance can be deceiving for us. The false prophets and teachers can be deceiving and they can talk a good game and not only talk it, they can actually do it on the outside. Now when you stop and go, you know what, that resume is really pretty good. And you go, what is missing though on the resume? See, that's really the question here. What's missing? And for your notes, I said it this way. What's missing is a relational bond with Christ. Verse 27, I never knew you. I never knew you. See, on the wide path, people are just going down. They're they're looking the part. They're looking religious. And they're going to come to the... And eternity is going to begin and Jesus is going to look at them and say, I never knew you. Boy, hard. What do we do? Well, let me give you something that popped into my mind even as we, we look at false prophets, we look at teaching and yeah, there's no relationship, but I, I got to throw out a warning, and it's really a great temptation, I think, for us at this point that we need to stay with it because the default there in your notes, we can default to become fruit inspectors and claim the right to decide who are in Christ and who aren't. See, the context of the chapter says discernment. Wisdom, be careful. But there's a line here that we are told to stay away from, and that's that the line is we cannot pass final condemnation on people in terms of their salvation. Now there's a whole other sermon there, maybe, but 
to suffice to say, Jesus is the one that reserves the right to determine whether he knows them or not. That's not our place. But let me give you one more missing piece, and I don't have this in your notes, so you could have put it, you could put it here. There's another piece that I think is missing from their resume. And, and my hunch is that Jesus and the writers intentionally left this out because it was not true of these prophets. And it comes in the way they relate to people. These prophets put great burdens on people. And one of the things that you don't see any evidence of is their love. They don't love people. They don't love the Son. They say they love the Father, but the evidence, the fruit is not there. And rather than taking care of the flock, they're heaping rules on the flock and putting burdens on them. See, through this entire sermon, this issue of righteousness is not about what we do, but it's about engaging with the Father, with the Son, and a relationship, a love bond with Him. And the love of the Father has to come into us, and it has to pass through and go out to other people. That's evidence of fruit. It's relational fruit, the relational fruit of loving. And it's demonstrated even when you go back to chapter 5 by meekness and kindness and humility. Those are the fruits of even in relationships. There's no relational fruit in these prophets' lives. And I think this is one where we need to check our own motives even. I was reading again this week on the internet just some blogs and uh, some of the people that want to become truth police for Jesus, and the, you, you, when you read their stuff, there's just no evidence of grace and love and mercy. It is judgment and condemnation, and they call themselves followers of Jesus. And there's a self-righteousness arguing that they have the corner on what real righteousness is about. But see, what is the, 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 really the application, maybe the ending application for us when we take this whole section in entirety? I think it's this. We need, it needs to stop us. And it should drive us to the feet of Jesus and go, Jesus, you're the one I need. You're the gate. You're the path. You're the real shepherd. See, religion, without a relational bond to Christ, really is nothing. It's a hoax. It's a wide path. It's a wide gate. And so this should force us to stop and go, Jesus, where am I at? We need to search within our hearts and go, are we missing out on relationship? Are we basing our life on a wide path and works? Or believing that I'm good enough to earn righteousness in some way and that you're going to say, yeah, come on in. And I realize there might be people today that are trapped there even here this morning. And I'll tell you this, what the, the, the journey is to seek Him. Seek the Son. Seek the Father. He's the one that's the gate, the door. We enter through Him. It's knowing Him. It's bowing before Him and said, Jesus, I need you. 
what Dave was talking about, the brokenness that we have, that's what we need to give Christ to demonstrate. And he pours his love into us. And he changes us from the inside out. I'm going to ask the elders to come on up. I want to hand out the bread. But even in light of the text today, we need to focus on Jesus and what he did. And, and I would ask that you would just stop and pause before you take the bread and as you maybe get it when it's passed by, go ahead, guys, and, and hand that out. But would you just pause and say, Jesus, I need you today. Would you meet me wherever I'm at? It needs to be about him.